Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. How many of you have ever been persecuted, or I shouldn't say persecuted, maybe been mocked because you have family members that aren't Christians, and you go to a family gathering, and you are trying to sort of share a little bit about Jesus with your friends and your family, and they look at you like you're really screwy. And by the way, you can change the lights here. I can't see anything. Um, They look at you like you're really screwy and there's something wrong with you, and they sort of laugh at you because you love Jesus. Has anybody experienced that kind of mockery or disdain from family members in their own family? Some, Some of you have, yeah. Well, you know, if you have ever experienced that, you're actually in good company because you may not have realized this, but Jesus experienced that as well, and we're going to be studying that this morning. Jesus' own family incidentally thought he was a maniac and didn't necessarily endorse him or follow him as the Savior. And Jesus' hometown, incidentally, also just completely rejected him and laughed at him, even though he had grown up with those people for 30 years. And so he experienced a lot of that same rejection that you do. We're going to study that this morning. Now, as a church, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we just finished last week Mark chapter 5, where Jesus was incredibly popular in the area of Capernaum. Remember learning that? There was 10,000 or more people at a time to be around Him, all pressing to touch Him and to be healed by Him. But as soon as we turn from Mark chapter 5 to Mark chapter 6, things change dramatically. Instead of Jesus being the center of attention and experiencing great popularity, Jesus is mocked and laughed at by the people in his hometown. Now, this is actually not all bad. I say that because if you remember, the flow of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus is actually, he selected his disciples, he is now training his disciples, and next week we'll see he sends his disciples out on their first short-term missionary journey. And as part of the training of his disciples, he, they need to know that, by the way, when you proclaim the gospel of God, you don't always get the kind of response that you had in Capernaum where there's people who are incredibly interested in hearing it, and it's a very popular thing to talk about. Sometimes people are hard-hearted. Sometimes people are against the gospel. So Jesus decides to take them from Capernaum, where the gospel is very popular, to Nazareth, where actually people are mocking him and uh, making fun of him, and he's experiencing persecution. So we're going to read uh, from Mark chapter 6. We're just going to do the first six verses. I'd like to ask you to take out your copy of God's Word. Stand out of reverence for God's Word. Follow along in your copy if you have it in front of you, because it's always good to keep our eyes in our own text as I read the first six verses of the sixth chapter. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? 
Why are such mighty works done by His hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Josie, and Judas, and Simon? I mean, are not His sisters here with us? They took offense at Him. And Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. That ends the reading of God's Word. You can be seated. Now, in the New Testament, there are only two times where it says that Jesus was astonished, or in our translation, marveled. Uh, The one time is when it came to the centurion, the Gentile centurion, who came to him to ask for him to heal his servant. And the servant said, just say the word. You don't even have to come to my house, and I believe you'll be healed. And it says Jesus was astonished or marveled at this man's great faith. The only other time is here in this section where Jesus was astonished or marveled at the lack of faith in his own hometown. Now, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we remember that Jesus gave us the parable of the soils. He said that people respond differently to the gospel when it is given to their lives. Some people are like good soil. The gospel seed will come into their life. It'll take root. It'll grow. It'll produce a great crop through their lives. And we've seen some of those people as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark. But other people are like rocky soil or weedy soil. And what happens is there's a great enthusiasm for the gospel at first, but over time it ends up getting choked out and they fall away. And quite honestly, the majority of the people in Capernaum, while there is some good soil there, the majority of it is rocky and weedy soil. People were pretty thrilled about Jesus, but it was primarily for his healing ability. And they quickly fell away when Jesus went away. But then when you come to Nazareth, remember the soil that was, um, or the seed that was cast along the path, the hard soil where the gospel seed never even penetrated and made any difference? The living picture of that is the village of Nazareth, because it seems like no matter what Jesus does, no matter what Jesus says, rather than receiving the gospel, they reject the gospel and they criticize Jesus and treat him with mockery and disdain, and the gospel never penetrates. Now, before we get into the uh, details of the text itself, let me begin with a little bit of background on Jesus and his family. And if you have your outlines, we're starting right at the top here with background. Jesus was rejected by his family. Jesus, we know, had a number of half-brothers and half-sisters that we're going to talk about later this morning. But rather than them being supportive of him and his ministry and being the Messiah, they rejected him. And they literally considered him insane and out of his mind. They called him a maniac. Remember this in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, at the very beginning when he started his healing work, it says, and his family, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. That's how they thought of him at the beginning of his ministry. 
But if you go to the Gospel of John, you can see what they thought of him at the end of his ministry, at the end of three years of teaching, at the end of three years of healing. It says this, John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, I want you to ponder what this must have felt like for Jesus. Being the oldest son in that family, he would have gone to work with his father, Joseph. They would have worked together to provide income for the family. Uh, He would have helped to feed these half-brothers and half-sisters. He would have helped his mother, as any older brother does around the house, helping to raise his half-brothers and half-sisters, yet to have them completely reject him and consider him insane at this point must have hurt incredibly deeply. That's what it felt like for Jesus. And he wasn't just rejected by his biological family, he was rejected by his hometown Luke chapter 4 gives us an earlier account that tells us of Jesus' visit to the um, town of Nazareth where he grew up in. Incidentally, some scholars believe that Luke chapter 4 is just the same thing that we're about to study in Mark chapter 6. But other scholars believe that what happened in Luke chapter 4 is actually an earlier visit he made to Nazareth than the one we're studying in Mark chapter 6. I believe Luke chapter 4 is an earlier visit, not the same visit. Let me tell you why. There's a variety of reasons. First of all, we find that when we look at Luke chapter 4, it talks about him doing uh, miracles in Capernaum, but it talks about him doing those miracles in the future. In other words, he hasn't done them yet, not the past. So if you've been following the flow of Mark, he has just done a ton of miracles in Capernaum. And when he goes into uh, Nazareth in Mark chapter 6, those miracles are now in the past, but it talks about them in Luke chapter 4 as taking place in the future. Look at this here, Luke chapter 4. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, future tense, Physician, heal yourself. What, you have, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He hasn't done those miracles yet. In addition, Jesus actually um, doesn't recruit his disciples until Luke chapter 5, and Luke chapter 4 comes before he recruits his disciples. But in Mark chapter 6, Jesus already has his disciples with them and intentionally brings them back to Nazareth. So, you may wonder, how did this very first visit in Luke chapter 4 go for Jesus when he went to his hometown? Were they warm? Were they welcoming? Actually not. It went rather poorly. Being that he grew up in that town, they asked him to speak on the Sabbath. And he did what you did in that day, which is you read from a text, and then you expounded upon a text, sort of like the preaching we do today. And his chosen text was Isaiah chapter 61, which are some messianic prophecies, talking about how the captives will be set free, the blind will be able to see, the free, he'll free the oppressed. And Jesus essentially says, by the way, 
this messianic prophecy is being fulfilled today in your hearing. I am the Messiah, and today the day of the Messiah has come. And then from there, what he begins to do is he begins to talk about the fact that, by the way, you guys are very hard-hearted, and so God is going to pass over you and move on ultimately to the Gentiles, and he gives some Old Testament text explaining that. Well, how well do you think that went over for his hometown congregation? Not well at all. In fact, what it says is this, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, by the way, I've been here over 10 years. I've preached some bad sermons, but I'm thankful to say none of you have tried to throw me over a cliff. And we can say that's because there's no cliffs in Iowa, but I actually like to think it's actually because I have a wonderful congregation. And that's what I believe, and that's true, I do. But this is the kind of reaction that he had in his hometown. In fact, let me show you some of these cliffs. Go ahead and throw that up. Oh, it is. There you go. Uh, Nazareth, as we're going to see a little bit later, is actually built into a hillside, and there is a steep cliff on the edge of the town. So this is the kind of cliff where they brought him to intentionally to throw him over the edge of it because they didn't like his preaching. It was too confrontational to them. Now, Jesus, at this point, um, remember, he's training his disciples He's already gone through this period of crazy popularity in Capernaum. So after crazy popularity, he says, guys, I know it didn't go well in Nazareth the last time I was there. They actually tried to kill me after I preached my first sermon. So I'm going to show you what hatred and opposition for the gospel feels like. We're going to go to the complete opposite experience of Capernaum. We are going to go to Nazareth, and you're going to understand what opposition for the gospel actually feels like. Now, what as I get into the text, I want to, you to know how this works. Typically in Mark, the first verse sets the context, and the teaching comes immediately after that. And that's the same thing that happens here. The first verse will set the context, and then the rest of the, verse will do, the verses will do our teaching. So here's the context. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, it says that he came to his hometown. We, it doesn't say directly that his hometown was in Nazareth, Nazareth, but earlier in Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 9, Mark chapter 1, verse 24, it tells us that his hometown was Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up for the first 30 years of his life in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is not that far. Let me go ahead and put that map up for you. There's Capernaum that we have been studying. Nazareth is just southwest. It's only 25 miles away. Today, if you were to go to Israel, you'd find Nazareth is a rather large town. But in the time of Jesus, it was an extremely small town. The entire city consisted of only 60 acres. As you saw earlier, it was built into a niche, into a cliff, into a rocky hillside. 
scholars tell us that there was 500 or less people that were in that city. So if you think you live in a small town now, imagine living in a town that only had 500 people. This town is so obscure, it is hardly ever mentioned in the Mishnah. It is hardly mentioned in the Talmud. Josephus never writes about it. And um, what we have is when you want to find out the reputation of this town, you just look at this famous quote by Nathaniel, where Nathaniel says this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It is a small, ingrown hometown which has a terrible reputation. And that's where Jesus grew up. 30 years living in a town of 500 or less people. This is the kind of community where everybody is related. This is the kind of community, community where um, nobody moves into town and you end up marrying your own cousin. <laughs> this is the kind of town where things are so insignificant that they almost develop an attitude of significance. You ever found that in small towns? where it is incredibly difficult to break into them socially and you can be very quickly and easily rejected if you're somebody of significance or you're an outsider. The Bible tells us, by the way, this is exactly what Jesus experienced, that he experienced rejection. And by the way, we should realize that we will experience rejection for our faith, and we will experience rejection for our walk in Christ. The scriptures say in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And folks, we live in a part of the country where the, it's Capernaum-like in gospel acceptance. You can talk about Jesus Christ uh, sort of in an open way in our part of the country, and people are open to going to church, and that is a, that's a good thing, and we're very thankful for that in our part of the country. But the truth is, if you look at the country in general, it is growing more Nazareth-like, not more Capernaum-like. Remember, Nazareth, they reject Jesus. They're hard against Jesus. And folks, we ought to be very um, thankful that we live in a part of the country where Jesus is generally accepted, but expect that as time goes on, he will become more and more rejected. And the kind of experience Jesus had in Nazareth will probably become more the kind of experience that we should expect in our culture. Verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? The custom was in this Jewish culture was that on the Sabbath day, if there was a qualified Jewish male that was there or had come to town, they were asked to address the congregation. Well, if you're in a town that has less than 500 people in it, there's not many qualified Jewish males. So when Jesus comes into town, even though they tried to kill him after the first sermon, they're pretty hard up for preachers, so they're willing to give him a second shot at this point. Now, the first sermon that Jesus gave, it was very confrontational in nature. But this sermon appears to be very wise and penetrating in nature, not as confrontational. It says they were astonished. And in the Greek, this is interesting because the word astonished means to strike, 
hit or blow over. And it has a Greek modifier in front of it to intensify it. So literally it means when they heard his preaching, they were completely blown away. That's literally what it means. Now, rather than responding to him with repentance, responding to him with faith, what they start doing is they begin criticizing him. Where did this man get this kind of truth? Very contemptuous answer. Who do you think you are to act as a spiritual authority over us? You are just the local town handyman. How dare you preach to us this way? Now, why are they rejecting Jesus? They're rejecting Jesus, quite honestly, because they are just too familiar with him. So they're unwilling to accept spiritual truth from him. Now, as I thought about this, I thought this is something we can learn from. They are too familiar with Jesus because he grew up in that town. So they're unwilling to accept spiritual truth from him. But for us, Jesus didn't grow up in our church, but we grew up in the church. For some of us, we have become too familiar with Jesus. And as we become too familiar with Jesus, the idea of grace and complete and full forgiveness doesn't seem that significant to us. We've already grown up with that. The idea of being loved and blessed by God and forgiven by God and chosen by God doesn't strike us with significance and doesn't strike us with importance because we have grown up around that. So we're almost anesthetized to that. We are finding ourselves in the same position as the people of Nazareth did with Jesus. And if that's you, I would call you, repent. Say, God, give me a heart that understands the grace that you have, the love that you have afresh and new, because I don't want to become so familiar with you that I forget the value of the grace and love you have for us. Now, as we continue in the text, what we find is how these people reject Jesus. And what I want to do is learn how the people reject Jesus and what we should expect when other people reject us. What can we expect from unbelieving hearts? Number one, we find unbelieving hearts will downplay the work of God in our life. Here's what they do. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? They hear Jesus' teaching. They say, who do you think you are? You didn't get this wisdom from Nazareth High School. You didn't go any place and study under a rabbi. So where did this spiritual authority come from? In fact, you find the Jews struggling with this in John 7:15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is this man, is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Where did Jesus' learning come from? Where did his spiritual authority come from? Let me tell you what happened. The Bible says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As Jesus grew up in Nazareth, I'd be willing to bet that he got up early, 
he went to that very same synagogue so he could get the scrolls from there, so he could read the scrolls before work, read the scrolls before school. And what happened was, is as he read those scrolls, the Holy Spirit worked in his life to apply his Bible to his life and to grow him into the full nature and maturity as the Son of God. And folks, it's the same thing that happens to you and me. Have you ever seen that when somebody becomes a new Christian? All of a sudden they have this incredible voracious appetite for the Word of God. They've never used highlighters before, but they buy themselves a pack because they have to highlight the Word of God, because as they read the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is applying that to their lives, and they're growing up, and their, their character is changing, and maturity is happening, and the work of God is transforming their life. But here's what often happens after the Holy Spirit starts to mature us and transform our lives. We go back to our former friends, And we start talking to them about Jesus. And we all of a sudden have these different life choices and changes. And what do they say? Well, who do you think you are? What made you judge over us? Would you just go to a seminar? Is this the result of that new keto diet you're on? And they start to downplay the transforming work of God in your life. As if the transformation is coming from you when the transformation is actually coming from the Holy Spirit and Jesus working in you. And hard-hearted people will downplay that. I'll give you an example. Some of you know that uh, I grew up in a Christian home. My wife did not grow up in a Christian home. She grew up in a home that didn't know Jesus. She came to Christ in her 20s. And she was one of those people who found her life just completely changed when she gave her heart to Jesus. Had a voracious appetite for a Bible, highlighted it like I mentioned earlier, couldn't get enough of it, and completely changed lifestyles almost overnight. Well, we ended up getting married. She doesn't come from a Christian family, and her grandmother is a devout atheist. And through the family gathering, Cindy would try and share with her again and again the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know how it is in those family gatherings? Sometimes people can find a way to always break off the conversation and get distracted. And that happened year after year. And finally, her grandmother came down with cancer. And she didn't have much to live. And Cindy woke up one morning and says, you know, God really laid it on my heart that we have to go, just the two of us, to her house we have to get her in a position where she cannot try and get out of the conversation. I need to share the gospel with her completely clearly and invite her to trust in Christ. And so that's what we did. And she shared Jesus with her. And I thought it was so interesting as I was there and Cindy shared Jesus and how Jesus transformed her life. And her grandmother said, well, I'm thankful you found something that fixed you. I'm thankful that you were able to change your life. And Cindy kept saying, no, I didn't change my life. It's not me. It's Jesus working in me. Hard-hearted people will always downplay the God transformation in your life. That happened to Jesus. Where did this man get this kind of wisdom? And it'll happen to us. We should expect that from those who are hard-hearted against the gospel. The other thing we see is this. Unbelieving hearts will attack our background. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, 
the brother of James and Josie and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? What essentially they say is this, who does this guy think he is trying to give us spiritual truth? He is just the local carpenter, just the local handyman. He's not a rabbi. He didn't go to school. He has no right to speak to us this way. Now, the Greek word behind this, the Greek word that's translated carpenter is the Greek word tekton, from where we get our English word tech, like technology. And it simply means a builder. It is actually in the Greek a very general term. It can be a builder of wood. It could be a mason who is a builder of stone or a builder of metal. And um, so we technically don't know. We always hear that Jesus was a carpenter and worked with wood. We don't necessarily know for sure he was a carpenter. What we know for sure is he was a builder and in the trades. The idea that he is a carpenter actually comes from a slightly later biblical letter written in 150 AD where it describes Jesus and Joseph as a carpenter who worked with wood making wooden yokes and wooden plows. In other words, he made wooden farm equipment. Now, is that biblically true? We don't know. This is a later letter. But what we do know for sure is that Jesus came from a very blue-collar family where they worked with their hands. And what they were doing is saying, you have no right to speak to us about theology and about God because you are just a blue-collar worker. They're pigeonholing him into his background. And they also pigeonhole him back into his family. They say, are not his own brothers and sisters here with us? And we already know that his brothers and sisters have absolutely no love for him, no support for him as the Messiah and as any spiritual authority. And they say, coming from your home, trust me, the Messiah didn't come out of your family. That's the way it is. Now, incidentally, just so you know, to give you a full uh, picture here, while Jesus' brothers and sisters were very opposed to him being the Messiah when he was alive on earth, after the resurrection, the Bible tells us he paid a special visit to at least some of his relatives. And they went from those who were mocking to him to those who were completely believing him. James, for instance, which is his half-brother, he actually became the leader in the church of Jerusalem and wrote the book of James that is in your Bible. Judas, one of his half-brothers, he's the one who wrote the book of Jude that is in your Bible. So the resurrection completely changed them, so they had absolutely no question that their half-brother rose from the dead. Another thing I should mention here is that sometimes people will claim that Mary was a perpetual virgin. When you read this verse, it's sort of hard to claim that Mary was a perpetual virgin when he happens to have his brothers and sisters right there in the town with him. And here's how people have tried to explain that away. Some people have said these were brothers and sisters. They were actually Joseph's sons from a prior marriage. That's hard to go with since they're never mentioned <laughs> You know, prior to Mary and Joseph's marriage, they were never mentioned. Some people say, well, actually, these were just cousins. The problem with saying that is there's a Greek word for cousins, and there's a Greek word for brothers and sisters. And guess what? 
It's the word brothers and sisters, not the word cousins. So what we have here is these are biologically half-brothers and sisters. But what they want to do is they want to pigeonhole Jesus into his background. And by the way, that's what hard-hearted people did to Jesus. And that is what we can expect hard-hearted people to do to you and me too. You don't have any right, they'll say, to be a spiritual authority because you were divorced. You don't have any right to speak to me about the things of God because at one time you were a convict. You can't speak to me about the things of God because you at one time were an addict or you were a criminal or you were an alcoholic. People who are hard-hearted will always try and pigeonhole you into those things. And that's not necessarily the right thing. It's not right. They can't do that. Number three, we see unbelieving hearts will attack us. It says, and they took offense at him. Now, the word offense here is the word scandalized. It means they were literally furious at Jesus. How dare you, Mr. Ordinary, who has brothers and sisters in the synagogue with us, who is just a carpenter, How dare you claim to be a spiritual authority and the Son of God? Now, as I was wrestling with this, something came to mind. There's a number of uh, apocryphal gospels out there, not included in our Bible. They were never accepted by the church, but sometimes people think they should have been included in the Bible. And they talk about things that Jesus supposedly did, some of them when he was a child, such as he made clay pigeons with his hands and he clapped them. And then they turned into birds and flew away. And people say, well, shouldn't we be accepting those things? Well, listen here. If Jesus was performing miracles in Nazareth, his, in his hometown when he was growing up, we wouldn't be reading here that they were scandalized about him because he was so incredibly ordinary. He said, there's no way that you could be the Son of God because there's nothing miraculous or nothing special about you. So they attack him. Just as unbelievers, hard-hearted unbelievers, were quick to attack Jesus, we need to expect that people who are hard-hearted will be quick to attack us for nothing else other than the gospel message. The scriptures tell us this in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. In fact, next week, when we go to the next section where Jesus sends out his apostles on their first short-term missionary journey, there's a parallel account of that spoken in Matthew chapter 10. And when he sends them out in that parallel account, what does he tell them to expect? Expect that people will persecute you just like you experienced in Nazareth. That's why I brought you there, to show you that. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his house? People persecuted Jesus. Expect them to persecute you when you act like him and speak the gospel like him. 
Next point of observation is this. Unbelieving hearts, by the way, can sometimes be found in those closest to us. Jesus said this. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus experienced rejection of the gospel by those who are closest to him. I think it's noteworthy. Some of you have a spouse who's not a Christian, and it's a very difficult thing. Jesus understands. He knows what it's like to have family reject you. Some of you have brothers or sisters who are not Christians. And when you go to those family gatherings, it just makes things really awkward. Jesus understands. Remember, his brothers and sisters did not believe him either. So, sometimes unbelieving hearts are found in those closest to us. And then also, unbelieving hearts will not experience the transforming power of Christ. And he could not do and he could not do mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Folks, there are consequences to hard-hearted unbelief. And the consequences for Nazareth is they experienced almost no miracles in that town. Now, it's not because Jesus couldn't do miracles in that town. He certainly could. He's God. He can do anything. But the miracles that he did were always, it seems to be, in response to people's faith, to build and confirm their faith. And in Nazareth, you had no faith to build and confirm. Remember last week with the bleeding woman? He said to her, it was not the fact you touched my garments that healed you, but it was your faith that healed you. Or Jairus, when his daughter ended up uh, dying, he said, don't fear, just believe. Place your faith in me, and I will respond. You see, what we find here is that God loves to work in response to our faith. He does his greatest works in response to our faith. It reminds me of Hebrews 11:6, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith in God is the way to please him. And then in response to that faith, God loves to reward us for our faith. Now, what can we learn from this and how can we apply this? I have three things on the last page for you. Number one, don't be surprised when we meet people who are, meet people hardened in unbelief that persecute us. Jesus experienced the same thing from his own family and his own hometown. We just see that in the response of Nazareth. There are people who are hard-hearted against the gospel. Expect it, even from your own family. Number two, an unbelieving heart will not experience the transforming power of Christ. Very clearly, Jesus says he didn't do many mighty works there because there was just unbelieving hearts there. So it seems like very clearly that God delights to respond in doing mighty things in response to people's faith. And when there is no faith, the consequences is there is no mighty works. Now, how does that apply to us? 
and I was wrestling on this this week and laying in bed and thinking on this because we're not people like Nazareth. We're not in hardened unbelief against Jesus. But to be honest, folks, sometimes I think we live in practical unbelief against Jesus. Let me explain the difference. Hardened unbelief for the people of Nazareth who are very opposed to him. We're not opposed to Jesus, but are we actively placing our faith in Jesus, hoping and waiting for him to respond? Let me give you an example. How often do you pray? James chapter 5, 16, verse 16 says that the prayer of a righteous person makes a big difference and has great power as it is working. How often do we pray? Or do we say, why pray because it doesn't make a difference? If we sit there and say, why pray because it doesn't make a difference, we are living in practical unbelief. And we shouldn't expect God respond to the, to respond to the prayers that we don't even offer or ask. You see how all of a sudden we're not in full-blown unbelief, but we may be slipping into practical unbelief because we don't pray expectantly with faith, asking God to answer our prayers. The Bible tells us that the prayer of a righteous person does have great power as it is working. Now you may notice that in the bulletins, I put the little prayer cards back in there, and I put those back in there for a reason, because, you know, the amount of prayers that we have been asking of one another and praying for one another has actually gone down recently, and I thought to myself, you know, to obey this, we need to be praying for one another more. I don't know what is going on in your, your life. I don't know what struggles you have in your work. I don't know what struggles you have in your marriage. I don't know what struggles you have in any of your relationships. But would you take that prayer card out today and sometime put down how we can pray for you? And we'll make sure as the staff, if it's confidential, the staff and the elders will pray for you. If it's a public one, we'll share it with life groups. Can they can pray for you? Because we believe that when we come to God in faith and in prayer, that prayer has great power as it is working. We don't want to be people who live in practical unbelief who don't pray because we don't believe it makes a difference. Another example. How often do we read and memorize God's Word. Some of us have grown up in the church, and we get busy during life, and we don't spend much time in God's Word during the week. But the Scriptures tell, this, tell us this in Matthew chapter 4, 4. It tells us, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The idea is, just like you need daily bread for your body to physically survive, you need the Word of God daily in your life to spiritually survive. That's what the Scriptures tell us. Now, do you really believe that? Or are you finding yourself living in practical unbelief and say, you know what, if I hear a sermon from the pastor once a week, that's enough for my spiritual nutrition. The Scriptures say that's not enough, that we have to keep our finger in the text during the week on a daily basis to be healthy and strong in our walk with Jesus. So my friends, while we may not be like the people of Nazareth who are hardened in unbelief, we don't want to be a people who are living in practical unbelief. We want to make sure we pray, 
in expectation that God will respond. We want to make sure that we read His Word, knowing that we need His Word to give us spiritual health, vitality, and life. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we can learn that um, sometimes there are people who are hard-hearted, places and people that will be very hard against You and hard against Your Word, and we should expect that. They'll be very Nazareth-like and not be surprised by that. But we also learn that when people are hard-hearted against you, that they will not necessarily experience any great transforming works from you. And we ask that we would not be people that live in not hard-hearted unbelief, but in practical unbelief. Help us this week to be people who pour out our hearts to you in prayer, and that we would pray for one another expectantly, knowing that you will respond, and to be people that are in your word, waiting for you to teach us, guide us, and provide spiritual nourishment that we so desperately need from it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.